I am a human being and I killed human beings. Before I attack five four shots at the door, I kept on shouting for Eva to find the police. A huge break. Police say they now have the killer in custody. The dead won't bother you. It's the living you gotta worry about. I think society deserves to be protected from me and from others like me. In South Africa, 58 people are killed every day. Last year, it was 57 people. This year, it's 58 people every day. Um, on Profiler, we bring you the stories of the criminals and the people who hunt them. I'm Paul Llewellyn. I'm a journalist curious to reveal the story behind serious crime on the continent. And joining me, as always, is Jared Lubbaskachny, former head of SAP's investigative psychology section and uh, uh, current head of LNS Threat Management. Today, we are talking about the Neisner murders. The sleepy seaside town of Neisner. Now that the New Year's starting, a lot of people have made their way back from the coast where they had a lovely holiday in these beautiful um, seaside villages that we have along the coastline. Um, tell us a little bit about Neisner. How typical is murder in the town of Neisner? Yeah, I, I definitely don't think murder is the most common issue that they're dealing with. Um, it's, it's, as you know, a, a, one, a beautiful little town, a beautiful part of South Africa in the Western Cape where a lot of people, specifically affluent people, uh, in, in December and our summer, go down there for sort of a nice summer's holiday. And it's, it's just if you ever have the opportunity to get there, it's really worth, worth popping by. Mm -hmm. So not the kind of place you associate with murder, not the kind of place you associate with violent crime in general, and definitely not the kind of place you associate with with, uh, with tyranny. Absolutely. Um, so tell us what happened when there was a victim suddenly murder takes place in the town of Meisner. So tell, tell us, contextualize the crime for us. Yeah, so if we jump back, this is now 2005, and we ended up having three murders. Um, so I say three because we'll, we'll get to it later, but the third murder was thought to possibly be part of the series, and definitely the defense tried to introduce that third murder as part of the series. But essentially what they went to trial with was two murders that took place literally about a month apart, I think 13th of October and then around about the 15th of November, of two young females, um, I think one was 18, one was 20, who were sort of staying in that particular area. And they were sexual murders in the sense of that we, we know one, there was some sexual activity, and the other one was found naked, so we classify them both as sexual murders. Uh, so quite shocking, uh, these girls were kind of well known in the town, um, although they hadn't necessarily been there for So they were long. locals? Locals. Um, at the time in question, they weren't holiday people visiting, they weren't you know, people moving through the town as, as often people do, tourists, etc. So that was quite a shock. Uh, they were both very young, attractive girls. Um, and yeah, so uh, hor quite horrific because the first one was found literally in the main road that runs through the town itself. You have a little church and in the church grounds. Sure. And the other one was found a month later was found a bit more out in the sort of foresty area surrounding surrounding Neisner. So here we are in Neisner. An af you know, a lot of kind of mm -hmm. affluent white folk live in the town of Neisner. Two white girls turn up dead. Um, what would your assumptions be before you'd looked at any evidence? Is there kind of, would your profiling mind go to a particular person just based on the fact that this is two kind of local white ladies that were, you know, well, relatively well known in the community, etc. What assumptions would you start to make at that point before you'd looked at any evidence mm -hmm. just based on the profile of the victims? Well, I think our first starting point would be, if we were called in, would be, are these cases linked to each other? So, of okay. course, you've got your forensic evidence uh, at that particular point in time. I don't think we had the DNA results when we got involved. Sure. Um, so that would, of course, be one way to link the two. It's not always a conclusive link, but it it's, um, definitely helps. And then, of course, we'd look at the victimology, the time frame, how they were killed, etc. And definitely, and this is what I ultimately testified in court, there were enough similarities for me to say, I believe this was probably the work of, of one individual. Which is what I went to cause sort of trial. Now, this is called a linkage analysis, and this is very typical in your work, especially in your time at SAPS when mm. you're working on these types of cases. Tell us, a, let's talk about linkage analysis as a, as a mm. practice within, within, within the, the work that you do. What is a linkage analysis? Well, essentially, I mean, for, for hundreds of years, as, as you've had sort of formal policing, one of the questions always was when you have a bunch of crimes in a particular area, whether it's housebreakings, sexual crimes, murders, you know, is it, are you dealing with the same person or persons? Because, of course, that would greatly influence how you investigate it. And it's no different when we deal with serial murder. And because what we know about serial murder's patterns of behavior is that they're relatively consistent in what they do and who they target and how they kill their victims because of that underlying psychological motive. So the crime becomes that expression of the underlying psychological motive that they are acting out in the way mm -hmm. we say it's like the blueprint. 
that underlying fantasy is a blueprint which makes them kind of repetitive in nature and similar in nature to a large degree. There will often be differences for reasons we can get into later. So that's what a linkage analysis is about. And that was often initially aimed at just helping investigators know, let's grab these cases and look at them together and let's exclude those ones and let other people investigate those ones. But of course, this also becomes an issue though when you go to trial because you don't always have physical evidence linking suspect A to crime one, two, and three. You might only have physical evidence linking the suspect to one of the four or five. Yeah. So then can one introduce evidence to the court to say, based on modus operandi or, you know, or other factors, we say this is probably the work of the same individual. But in our legal system and in other ones that are based on the English system, there's always been the, issue, the concept of similar facts. You know, the, the sort of phrase is similar facts, similar acts have similar facts. And prosecutors for many years before there was even the word profile or linkage analysis, could do that in court. They could link, introduce evidence by, or in, in the presentation of their final closing arguments to say that these three or four crimes have such similar modus operandi features that we argue it is the same suspect who we've put on trial here. So that's been around long before we ever existed as profilers. But as profiling developed and research developed, we were able to say, but we can give an expert opinion about that. And so instead of just the prosecutor saying, my Lord, these five or 10 points are similar across the case, therefore we say it's a similar person, we could say, but from our expertise with these types of crimes, we can kind of take it one step further or, or on a higher level and say, based on these reasons, we as experts say that these crimes are probably the work of one individual. So it started off with a linking cases for investigation point of view, and then people started to realize, but hang on, this could also be a courtroom evidential tool. And there's been a lot of research growing and growing about linkage analysis that confirms the consistency of offenders, the similarities of certain behaviors across a series, et cetera. Okay. Whereas a profile is often criticized for lack of research, linkage analysis has this increasing growing body about supporting that linkage analysis is something that can, can work and there's research to back it up. Yeah. When you look at a linkage analysis, are there certain things which tend to be similar? And then are there certain aspects that can that tend to vary more yeah. um, between cases? Do you find that? Yeah. So what we find are things like how they control the victim, the type of violence used, the type of victim, um, and, and very often geographic location are kind of four very, very strong key linkage points. Okay. Um, that sometimes even the geographic location will be a very, very strong reason why to say these are probably the work of one individual. Sure. Now, of course, what you'd say for an investigation point of view, you can be far more liberal, perhaps not the best word, in linking the cases, because there's no harm in including a case that ultimately turns out not to be part of the investigation. And why I say that is, Typically, when you have a murder series investigation, you're getting your very good, very top-notch investigators involved. Mm. You're often getting your, your forensic evidence done at a faster rate because of the, the priority of the case. So even if it does turn out that one or two of the cases that you initially included turns out not to be the same individual, you hand that case back to some other detectives in a far better condition than if it had been left as a single case with those investigators anyway. So we'd be a bit more liberal in our inclusion when we're talking about the investigation, but when we go to trial, we had to be far more strict in when we say a case is linked or not because of the impact. You could link, you could erroneously or incorrectly link it to a person who isn't the responsible for that crime. Yeah. That's, that's bad on its own, of course. But of course, secondly, if that person got convicted, you actually allow the real suspect to get away. So from an investigation point of view, no harm in being a little bit more inclusive or liberal in our inclusion. But when we go to court, we have to be very, very strict in, in making 100% sure that when we believe that this case is linked, it is, it is linked 100%. Well, then let's start to draw these links between the cases. Um, let's talk about the first murder yeah. in more detail. Take us through the first murder in more detail. Yeah, so basically what we have is the 13th of October, 20, 2005, early hours in the morning. She's out with this, uh, Jessica Wheeler is out with her friends um, at Stones and Zanzibar nightclubs. Now, I don't know what the nightclub scene is in Nyasna now because I'm close to 50. Um, but in those days, these were one of the two hot sort of places for young people to go to. They were right Oh, beer, a bit of a dance Absolutely. floor, I'm sure. We all know the Stones yeah. vibe, yeah. So the kind of place where 18... We'll go to Stones, okay? For a research... We'll go to Stones for a research expedition, yeah, a little, little mission. So for the 18-year-olds <laughs> and 20-year-olds and probably a few others, but older than that, definitely this is one of the two the two places to go to was Stones and Zanzibar's, literally over the road. So people okay. would go between the two back and forth during the evening. So popular public venues. Yeah. Okay. So she left um, with three, of her, uh, three other people, her flatmate and two other ladies. The flatmate was a guy. They weren't in a relationship. 
And they left at about two o'clock in the morning and went back to her flat, which is about 50 meters away from actually um, from those two night spots that I just mentioned, Stones and Zanzibar, along that same main road that runs right through Neisner. Um, so the all four of them went back to her flat, and which is obviously carrying on chatting. And then it's either a dispute where there was a knock downstairs or she got a phone call shortly after two o'clock in the morning that, that caused her to leave the flat and go downstairs and meet someone. Now that's someone who she was then later seen sitting on the church wall, which is next to their block of flats, um, was identified as the suspect who was ultimately convicted. Okay. But she never returns back to the flats and about 6.30 the next morning, a vagrant in the area um, who's in the graveyard sees her um, dead body and notifies the authorities. Okay. Um, people staying in the flats that overlook that little patch of, of the churchyard, which we'll be putting obviously pictures up um, yeah. on the various social media platforms, actually heard um, some screaming at the, you know, in those early hours in the morning. But unfortunately, there's a lot of homeless people and street kids in the area. And they just assumed that these were the, these homeless street kids, you know, having an argument or a fight. So they, unfortunately, they never even looked out their window. And uh, Jessica's body's body was found. So, so her body was kind of found. She was lying um, on her back, her shirt. She was wearing her shirt. Uh, she was wearing a thong sort of g-string style underwear right sock was on left sock was nearby shoes were nearby and her jeans were sort of placed sort of ac across the length of her or down the length of her body as if someone had intentionally put it on top mm. arms sort of out and her legs together so clearly this was not the position in which she would be murdered the suspect obviously put her, put her legs together and plonked the jeans down on top of her Absolutely. her hand her handbag was found um very close to where her body was with her keys her cigarettes her phone and her um, wallet so clearly that robbery was not uh, was not the motivation not the main main yeah. sort of motivation um yeah so it, it, yeah i mean it it's it certainly feels posed to a degree i mean it's almost like the jeans are just tossed up tossed on her as the guy's leaving even it feels yeah. just so and left out in the open i mean it doesn't feel like it's He's given much consideration to, to, to hiding this body. Definitely, I mean, there's um, no no effort there. Well, it's behind a few a few a few broken um, tree stumps. Mm. Um, so fortunately, from a range so very point brazen. View, yeah, left out in the open. You know, one can try and make interpretations about that, but left out in the open. That, and then, fortunately for us, from a forensic point of view, was literally discovered within in, you know a few hours of this incident. So that yeah. makes it better from a forensic point of view for the post mortem autopsy. Mm -hmm forensic evidence such as DNA, etc. Now, the cause of death uh, was as asphyxiation due to the aspiration of large amounts of soil. So basically what that means, she had so much soil, sand, in her sort of throat that it actually clogged up uh, her ability to breathe and she actually died as a result of that. Um, other sort of physical things that came out from the autopsy that were important were no signs of vaginal trauma, but two tears on the anus um, most likely from, from anal penetration, yeah. and there was uh, DNA found in her anus, which was linked to the suspect who we'll get to a bit later. Would you assume then, is this, I mean, if it's asphyxiation because of soil in her, would he be, is there, a, is there an assumption as to whether she's face down and having her face pushed into the mud, or is he putting mud onto her face yeah. and asphyxiating her that way? Most likely what happened, and if you look in the sort of flower beds that are bordering that sort of church um, property, there does seem to seem to be a point where there had been a lot of disturbed dirt. So it's probably what happened is that she was face, shoved face down into the dirt and that caused that. And he was of, possibly committing the sexual act yeah. on her at the time and, and killing her at the same yeah. time. So, through his so I don't think it was, I mean, it, it's possible you might have shoved soil yeah, down yeah. her throat, but probably she essentially started, inhaled and choked on soil because she was having her face yeah. shoved into the ground. Because, yeah. I mean, shoving soil manually is not the most effective way to kill no. someone. You know, no, I, the strangulation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But then it would, there would be that extra aspect of being face-to-face. -face yeah. you know, so here he's he's not face-to-face with her when he's committing the actual murder itself, yeah. necessarily. He's possibly committing a sexual act on her and, it's, and then committing the murder at the same time. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, I mean, crazy that, that, you know, this is, she's with friends, you know, the murder prop murderer must know that she's just you know i assume then it's somebody that he would have known um she obviously would walk this path relatively frequently she if she lives close to this area she's walking it she's not driving it so she would be mm. walking there and back regularly interesting that that 
ultimately the suspect turns out to be um, to be the killer, that he would again be so brazen as to kind of call her out in such a public way on the phone when she's with friends, etc. Um, wouldn't there be, you know, would there not be a consideration to just snatch her off the street, you know? Yeah. So just interesting from, from the get-go. Yeah. Let's then talk about, should we move on to the second yeah. murder? So the next one was the 8th of November. Uh, uh, young lady, I think she was 20 at the time, Victoria Stadler. Again, had been out to Stone's nightclub. Uh, I think yeah. she'd also been a bit to, to, to Zanzibar, but Stone's was the main feature for her. Uh, she joined, her boyfriend joined her. Um, she'd been living with him for a, f a few days. Um, and later on that evening, the boyfriend decides he wants to leave and she decides to stay. Um, and the boyfriend was friends with the DJ and he said, look, you know, can you look after? And I always say to people, and in any circumstances, never leave your girlfriend with the DJ. Um, <laughs> it's just not a, not a particularly good idea. Um, so later on that evening, um, the boyfriend tries to get hold of her and the next day tries to get hold of her because she hadn't come home um, and nothing. So um, he then contacts the, the DJ and says to him, listen, you know, do you know where she is? Um, and he says, well, look, she dropped me off in the early hours of the morning near where I stay, which is Horn Lee, which is a small township on the sort of outskirts of Neisner. Okay. And, you know, that's the last I saw her. That's what the DJ is telling her. But he says to the boyfriend, look, you know, if the cops ask you, you know, tell, tell her that I sent an SMS uh, 2.30 to say, you know, I'm, you know, she's, she's dropped me off and everything's great. So already from that point, DJ is asking boyfriend to lie because he kind of said to the boyfriend, yeah, you know, me and the cops, they'll always think I'm a suspect if anything goes wrong or et cetera. So okay. that, of course, does from the start place. Well, he was the last person to see her, sure. always a starting point for any investigation. But he's also asking the boyfriend to lie. And initially, the boyfriend did sort of not not thinking that his girlfriend's dead or anything or that this guy would have killed her, kind of did pass on that misinformation to the police. Do we know at this stage whether or not the police have identified the DJ as the caller mm. for the first case? So is, he all, is the DJ potentially on the police's radar already when the second crime happens? I'm not sure at that point if he was considered as a, as a serious suspect because she had gone home. Yeah. Um, I don't think he would have been looked at as, as a suspect at that point of view, if, if I recall correctly. Okay. So, um, so yeah, so basically her vehicle is found, um, uh, Victoria's status vehicle is found the next day, burnt out near the forest, sort of close by to Horn Lee, because there's a lot of um, pine forests in that area. There's a lot of, uh, that's one of the industries there. Okay. And again, here are the images for you to have a look at. And, and it's you can check them out on our social media. Completely burnt out. And how, what happened was that because it's a, it's a forestry area, there's fire watchers. And someone had saw something on fire, called the police, police had gone out. And literally kind of got there and said, yep, that's a car on fire and bug it off and didn't do anything about it. They didn't try and identify whose vehicle it was. They didn't, of course, when the boyfriend's reporting the missing persons, that vehicle wasn't reported at that point. So it took a couple of days, I think by the 16th of November, Six days, when yeah. somebody realized, um, hang on, that vehicle that they'd done nothing about, the cops. Um, and there was obviously disciplinary investigation into that from the cops' point of view. Okay. As actually this missing persons, they then searched the area surrounding the vehicle and discovered a body. Now, this is Neisner, midsummer, which is November, very hot, foresty. So the decomposition was unfortunately quite advanced, which then affected yeah. some of the forensic potential forensic evidence, at least in terms of the post-mortem examination. It's amazing how much decomposition can happen in a two-week period. It is actually quite, um, yeah. yeah, these are quite difficult pictures to look at. So she was essentially found about 100 meters away from her vehicle in, in the end. So again, wasn't if someone had done a proper search at that time, we would have discovered the body sooner. And not particularly covered either. I mean, it's, um, you know, she's, it seems like there's some efforts to cover the body here yeah. at least. She's what, under, under a log, under a loose fallen log. Yeah. Um, some kind of plant life grown around the body and maybe some loose dry twigs thrown over the body. but. Yeah, I mean, not particularly, not buried, not particularly mm. well hidden. And if I also recall correctly, when the boyfriend had gone to report to missing persons, they'd actually turned him away, which is again one of these ridiculous things. That's, it's an it's a urban legend that you have to wait a period of time before you can report, report as, uh, someone as a missing person. You know, sometimes the police will say it's 48 hours. Yeah. There's never been a rule that you must wait 48 hours. Yeah. You report them immediately, specifically the younger the person is, yeah. or even the more suspicious the circumstances. Yeah. You report them immediately. You don't have to have a picture. Sometimes people get turned away by saying, well, you don't have to, you don't have a picture of the person, so how are we supposed to find them? Yeah. Um, and you are able, allowed to open up a missing person's report and the police are supposed to start doing inquiries immediately. Because 
we must remember that those critical, I mean, all these, you know, the TV shows that we watch that talk a lot about the fact that that first 48 hours is the critical, critical time period because the further, you know, the, the more the more time that passes, the, the further away you are from the evidence, yeah. you know, literally and kind of um, figuratively. And, and again, perhaps there's something, I don't know if it's unique to South Africa, you know, then some person come happens to come past the vehicles because if you look at the photographs you see there's no rims now sure. rims don't burn away everything else that was not solid metal burnt away in that yeah. car thoroughly completely um and somebody actually came by and stole all four of the rims and they, well, they uh, eventually recovered those and that person that was ruled out as being involved as, as anything to do with the crime well that's so, very that's a very south african pastime that isn't it just yeah. um taking the opportunity to, to jack something when you get it mm-hmm. um talk to us a little bit about the challenges we'll talk about how he was caught and um, and and the court case, etc. After we take a little break, talk to us about how the, the challenges between you've got a body that's found hours after the crime was committed. Like you say, forensically, a much better scenario. Here, you've got a corpse that's been sitting, like you say, in a humid, hot environment. There's a lot more decomposition. Mm. Practically, what are the challenges forensically yeah. when you have these two different scenarios? Yeah. So, of course, um, things like DNA would potentially degrade. Now, um, the damage, the, the, the injury is done to the body. For example, penetration of the vagina or the anus gets more difficult to determine. And depending on how long it goes on for, you know, wounds that might have been there observable, such as, you know, abrasions to the neck if it's strangulation, as the body decomposes, you get less and less chance of identifying those. So, cause of death potentially becomes something you might struggle to identify. Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, Fingerprints on the body, touch DNA on the body, and other forms of, of, of biological evidence can deteriorate. Yeah, deposits of like semen inside the vagina or inside the anus, yeah. what have you. Are these kind of will these degrade as well, yeah. or will it, will the corpse have to around around those samples have to degrade before they degrade? Yeah. So that was so. So for example, semen, depending how deep in the body, time frames we're talking about. But normally, as the body decomposes, that will affect the decomp- that decomposition would affect the biological samples. So you'd have a better chance of a biological sample that's on the surface of the skin or on clothing. Can if it dries out, you're actually pretty good chance because I mean we can we can get DNA of clothing from from years later if it okay. wasn't kept in a too much of a hot and humid because that hot and humid has fungi and yes. other types of things that also degrade the DNA. So again, it's a combination of things. So in this particular instance, the, they were able to determine from the postmortem that the hyoid, hyoid, H-Y-O-I-D, bone, which is in the neck, kind of around your Adam's apple area, was broken. And that is very often consistent with strangulation, yes, yes. which again can point towards strangulation being the cause of death because it's quite a flexible bone and you have to really get a lot of pressure oh, to break that little bone. Okay. So that had happened, which indicates strangulation possibly as the cause of death. Um, because of the decomposition, they couldn't determine if she'd been raped or, or anally, anally raped, okay. which again um, was not so great. But what they did find is that with some of her clothes that were about 10 meters away, I think her underwear and her pants, did have usable semen on. So that's the example of when I said just now, if it's on the outside of the body and clothing, better chance it'll survive the later that we get it. And that was linked the same DNA profile as from um, Jessica Wheeler's murder about a month before. Now we know once they'd identified the car, they kind of get a very clear sense of the time frame because they know when the car went, you know, when she went missing, when she, when the car went missing um, and they're able to identify whose corpse it is. Um, So we know the time frame. How easy is it if somebody would walk on this crime scene without that information? How quickly would they get to this the, the 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 assumption that this corpse has been out for two weeks? How how easy is it to gauge the duration that a body yeah. has been, um, you know, in a in 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 a, in a natural environment? Yeah. So again, there they are. It's 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 there's science behind it, but there's a lot of exceptions to the rules. So what we would typically use if we just were called out to a crime scene, there's a body lying there. Um, what you can use is temperature. Uh, that's probably a bit better if you can visually see it's more of a fresh body because um, of course the body cools down from the point of death uh, okay. as you die your body's not your heart's not pumping your, your body isn't moving and creating energy so you cool down um, and then it kind of reaches a bit of a stable temperature and then it, as it decomposes because of the decomposition process heats up a bit oh, I see. so okay. determining cause of death by temperature is usually good in the in the earlier phases like probably with you know 
within the first week or two. Even a day is probably oh, pushing it. You know, oh, we're I talking see. very I short see. periods okay. of time. And then, of course, you have to take into account, is it an air-conditioned room? Is it outside? Is it covered? Is it winter? Is it summer? So okay. it's best if the forensic pathologist attends the crime scene to gather all of that information that helped that forensic pathologist pathologist and then what you normally do is take the temperature from the liver so you'll make an incision in the body at the scene stick the probe in get the temperature and kind of from that be able to to give a time frame and of course you can't say it was at 05 23. so important to get the forensics people yeah. on the scene absolutely so that's the one thing the second thing we use is is insects because we know at a certain time frames of the decomposition certain different insects and animals will be present from flies right in the beginning then beetles, and then you have maggots because that's a fly cycle. And if you know the type of fly, you know what the cycle is. Yes. But again, you'd have to get the entomologist, forensic entomologist, to look at the circumstances okay. uh, inside, outside, covered, not covered, wet weather, dry weather, yes. uh, those types of things. So those are probably the two temperature and forensic entomology okay. from that point of view. Beyond, of, of course, looking when was someone's cell phone not active yes. anymore, lost scene movements of their vehicle, which help you uh, just kind of part. So the more of those you can use the more accurate you will be in determining a, a time frame. Okay, so we've got two murders. Um, we will talk about how um, our DJ was brought to book um, eventually after we take a little bit of a break. Guys, remember that um, we really are on a mission to get a 1,000 subscribers to the page, so please encourage your friends to uh, subscribe to Profiler here on YouTube. Um, they just have to search Profiler Africa on YouTube. We're also available on uh, iTunes, on Spotify, and on SoundCloud. And please do go and check out our social media. If you're listening um, if you're listening to the podcast, you can check out some of the crime scene photos, some of the stuff that we're discussing on our Instagram page, on Facebook, um, and on our Twitter account, at um, Profiler Africa. So please, and if you have any questions, if you have any cases you'd like us to talk about in the future, um, any topics around crime, around serial crime, um, we are we're always happy to field them. So, but most importantly, please do subscribe to the podcast. We'll be back after a little break. In South Africa, 58 people are murdered every day. Um, here on Profiler, we discuss the criminals and the people who hunt them, talking about some of South Africa's most notorious and interesting crimes. I'm Paul Llewellyn. I'm a journalist curious about crime on the continent. And as always, I'm joined by Jared Lavascafni, our resident expert and the man who caught um, some of South Africa's uh, worst citizens over a 15-year period and continues to... Um, yeah, to just kind of help us deal with our crime issues but from more of a corporate threat management point of view these days with LNS threat management. Gerard, we've been discussing the Neisner murders. I think we had a very interesting discussion about the two cases and some of the aspects of the different of the different murders. We've got two crimes, um, both from happening from a similar location, mm -hmm. central Neisner, popular night spots, bodies disappear, two slightly different uh, uh, crime scenes in that one was found very soon after the murder, the other was found a couple of weeks later and there were some issues with just some bum a bit of bumbling with the police in that regard when they found the car. Now, how do we actually get to Mr. DJ, who's, let's be honest, not being the smartest serial killer in the world? How do we get to, yeah. how do we get to catching this guy? So, of course, now, so with the, with the first incident, she was on that church, seen on that church wall. Later, I, the person she was seen sitting with was identified as, as Hani van Royen, the guy who was arrested. Okay. But I think um, more conclusively was Victoria Stadler's murder, where she, you know, he was the last person seen with her. She dropped, she dropped him off near in Horn Lee, which is where he stayed. Um, he asked the boyfriend to lie. So he was definitely placing himself in a far more suspicious circumstances with, with number two. Um, and, and more concrete, you know, he placed himself there. Yeah. with the second murder, with her later as, as literally the last person who would have had contact with yeah. her. So that definitely put him in the spotlight of this, this is suspicious. But now you also have him linked kind of to both ones by association. Um, so his DNA was taken. Uh, and then uh, on the 8th of December, just about a month after the second murder, he was arrested because his DNA matched both DNA profiles. Okay. So he, if you look at, they did have CCTV footage from Victoria Stadler, the second victim's murder in the nightclub where they could be seen kissing. Okay. So, you know, of course, now uh, it, it, bring, it brings into the argument of, well, yes, I did have some sexual interaction with her. That's why my semen's on her clothes. So this is why I've said before, semen and DNA and 
DNA in the form of semen is not an open and shut case. Because yeah. so, we do think I put, we put a, there's a lot of emphasis placed yeah. on DNA just in kind of popular culture, or, you know, prime content, etc. But now for Victoria, he was not admitting that he was the person on the wall. He was kind of vaguely saying, I admit that at one point I had a sexual relationship with um, Jessica Wheeler, the first girl, but he didn't want to say when it was. He didn't want to say it was the night of the murder, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it, 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 that helps us in a way um, because, you know, if he's, why don't you want to be honest about when that happened, you know? Yeah. Um, so again, so if it was a single murder, him admitting that he had sex with her and we have the footage that there was consensual, you know, kissing and flirting taking place, would have placed us in a very difficult position. But statistically, now you have two girls who are murdered just after you happen to have some sexual interaction with them. Yes. That's getting a bit more difficult to explain, just statistically happening. Yeah. Um, and of course, him being very vague about when the sex happened with, with the first victim, uh, Jessica Wheeler. Uh, it's, it's, it's anal penetration outside, out in the open. Um, she's found dead thereafter. So that's definitely placing him in not a very good light. But of course, it's not an open and shut case. Um, so then the police had to sort of obviously look at more additional circumstantial evidence that that was there. Um, eyewitness evidence, like I said, placed him at the, at the, at the, on, the on the little wall where he denies it was him. <clears throat> is again, again, helping us, not helping him. Um, yeah. And of course, what one of the perhaps unique features that was brought into this case was, uh, was actually pollen evidence. Okay. So in the area where her body was found, uh, uh, um, the, the second victim, as you saw, she sort of was shoved amongst some bushes. There was a particular kind of plant, and uh, I have the name, I've got to get the name. <laughs> but, uh, it, its Latin name is um, Rubus rigidus, which I think is the white bramble, is a common name that's referred okay. to, which is, is quite uh, found in that area, and definitely around where uh, Victoria Stadler's body was found. Okay. Now, the difference with this type of pollen compared to sort of the normal pollen, if we look at pictures of bees, we imagine them floating around, picking up pollen on their legs, going to another plant and pollinating it. Yeah. That's kind of more like a loose grain pollen that can almost like float in the air type of pollen. Okay. This particular pollen was more, to put it in very simplistic terms, was more like a snot-like pollen. Okay. So it sticks to you as, as animals would move through the bushes. And this is not a particularly comfortable and nice bush to actually move through. So yeah. people don't easily walk into such a bushes. Yes. And this guy had... Uh, Hani van Rooyen had a lot of that on the upper parts of his, the pants that they then seized afterwards. So the botanist said, you know, you would have to literally walk through these brambles. And it's not, a, as I said, it's not a comfortable kind of plant that you wouldn't voluntarily walk through. Yeah. They tried to argue that these types of plants are in the area where he stayed. But again, the botanist was saying you would have to literally walk through this stuff. It then yeah. sticks onto you. And then later, it, how it pollinates is that it, when it dries, it kind of flakes off. And where it lands, it then hopefully will pollinate a new plant. So that was something interesting that was introduced uh, during the evidence amongst the basically all the other evidence which was circumstantial evidence. Yeah, th th it's interesting how many tools the police have at their disposal to be able to say, okay, DNA is something which you'd consider to be a solid piece of evidence. Mm. Okay, yeah, he could have, you know, it could have been his girlfriend. It could have been a casual sexual encounter and she was killed by somebody else. But when, you know, we do have the means to put all of these different types of information together. Um, and then, of course, my, my evidence was the, the, the linkage analysis yes, evidence, yes, which yes, we, yes. we spoke about yes. briefly in the beginning. Yes. Of what that is. Talk, talk to us in this case, what were the key links then okay. for you? So like I said earlier, we had actually three murders that uh, we had yes, to look yes. at. Um, he was charged with two. The third one, which is what the defense was trying to bring into the, into the courtroom, saying this is the guy that these people that committed number three, which is actually on the same day as, as Victoria Stadler's murder, 10 November, a 47-year-old male was found in the Hornley area. Um, car was stolen. They recovered the car in Cape Town. Uh, was found murdered. Um, asphyxiation also um, kind of shoved under, under some foliage in the Hornley area. And his cell phone was missing. As I said, his, his car was recovered in Cape Town. His watch and his ID. So much more of a robbery motive um, for that particular case. Okay. So two guys were arrested for that. And I think ultimately convicted. And the defense was trying to say, but these are probably the guys that then killed oh, these I two see. girls. Yes, so that became, uh, which I mean, it's, it's their right to introduce yeah. it. <clears throat> but for me, there were definitely a strong, from a linkage point of view, di dissimilarities between okay. the, the, the two girls that were murdered and this particular guy. The first most important one is two females versus one male. Yeah. Two females murders with sex had sexual elements to it and not really any robbery because remember Victoria, uh, Jessica Wheeler's bag was found there, cell phone, wallet, you name it. Yeah. Victoria's car was burnt. Yeah. Her phone was never recovered anywhere. Nothing else, you know, wallets, no cell, yeah, no, no bank cards were used. Whereas definitely with um, 
the the um, the, the male who was murdered, um, there was definitely a robbery more as a likely motive. Um, the male was tied up, hands and feet. The girls weren't tied up at all. Um, partial undressing for the two girls, which you didn't have on the, the male guy that was murdered. So very strong things that perhaps for me said, this doesn't seem to be the work of the same individual. Okay. Um, so my similarities, like I said, it was early hour of the mornings. Both had been the stands and uh, stones in Zanzibar at the time. Both white females, 18 and 20 years old. Sexual element to both of them. Um, so many similarities. Yeah. That um, yeah, to have some to have a third, which is so out of the realm, I perfectly understand how. Yeah. Uh, but again, I mean, you know, you you don't blame the defence for kind of yeah. wanting to kind of raise that element of doubt in the. In the and and he had a very good. I mean, he had advocate Terry Price, who's incredibly well known. Okay. Well, not legal. Not that legal aid is bad, but sure. it was a privately funded advocate who. I mean, he was the same guy who represented the Paniatu, the guy who murdered his oh. um, wife. Yes. had his wife murdered, I think it was in PE. Yeah. Um, very aggressive, uh, sometimes I think to his detriment. Very competent, very aggressive. I mean, the, it was probably the most unpleasant cross-examination that I've ever had. Uh, and I, I sat in when the botanist or the, that was testifying about the pollen and you know, he really went How, off. Uh, talk to us a bit about that. How, uh, what's, what's the experience of that like for you, um, testifying in yeah. court? Look, I find testifying in court being cross-examined challenging, but that's why I enjoy it, because it's a real test of your skills to be able to show that you're an expert and, and prove your your, your, yeah. your reasoning behind what you've said. And and it's nice because ultimately the judge says whether they believed you or not. Yeah. So it's actually good to have proper cross-examination, because I think when the evidence is then accepted or rejected by the judge, it's put on, it's been put through uh, the ringer. But most um, times, cross-examination, I mean, it doesn't have to be aggressive to be good. I mean, an angry and aggressive cross-examination does not necessarily mean a good one. Yeah. And sometimes people say that if they can't attack your evidence, they try and attack you. Or they try and your yeah. credibility, your professionalism, they try and upset you, make you look like a plonker on the, on the witness stand. Yeah. Um, uh, but I just think Terry Price's style of, of, of cross-examination, probably anybody, is just one to be very, I mean, he even had a bit of a go at the judge and said to the judge, I'm going to ask you to, be recu to recuse yourself. Okay. Um, so he's very, very aggressive. Like I said, I think sometimes to the detriment of his client. Yeah. Um, my own opinion. Um, Are there any circumstances where you lost your cool? Not uh, got angry, exasperated by sure. by you know re repetitive, poor cross examination yeah. that's not well thought out, and the person's not listening to the answers you just given. Yeah. That's frustrating. But I, I don't think I've ever gotten upset and angry. Um, Pardon? Have you ever been flustered at any of these scenarios? Um, I sometimes. Sorry, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was yeah. me not listening and paying attention. You know, you know what? It is difficult. People ask stupid questions. Ah. It's like, you know, like the equivalent of being asked, why does the sun shine? It's something we all take for granted. It'll happen. We know it yeah. happens every day. And you suddenly have to explain something that's almost so basic and, and yeah. obvious that that sometimes becomes difficult to actually yeah. explain. How do you weigh up the responsibility? Because here you're playing a role in, 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 in a human being's fate, ultimately. Yeah. And look, I mean, anytime you testify specifically as an expert, it is a massive responsibility. Mm. You know, if you if you give evidence that leads to the wrong person being convicted and the, and the real suspect out there, that's a double tragedy. So you really have to weigh up, do I 100% believe what I'm saying? And like I said earlier, when we look at it from the investigation point of view, when we give a linkage opinion versus during the trial, we're always far more strict with ourselves during the trial because of the possible impact upon the person who's charged with the yeah. crime. And people have this thing as we just want to get anybody guilty. But you have to understand that that would have to be a whole conspiracy by a whole range of people in the trial, all agree that we're going to falsely testify against person A for whatever reasons that we don't know, um, to get them wrongly convicted just so we can have a conviction. But again, you, you let the real suspect and you don't free and you don't bring justice to the family. So that's a massive responsibility, but it's also why I, I enjoy it because you feel that you are being useful to the court. Um, it's a great test of your skills and abilities to be put through tough cross-examination and have it accepted uh, in, in the court. And ultimately you're able, you're playing a role in taking people like Heinrich von Royen off the streets. Tell us a little bit about this guy um, from a psychological point of view. How do you, what are your kind of opinions on this yep. fellow psychologically. So I didn't assess him, uh, so I obviously can't give any kind sure, of diagnostic I, I commentary. Yeah. And, I, and I don't, he probably doesn't have any real diagnosis to, to speak of. Yeah. Um, but again, a very cool, calm, collected, slick kind of guy, very successful with the woman. I think he had a live-in girlfriend who we had a child with at the time. Um, was, you know, 
successful DJ in the town. His father was had been the head of the local prison. I don't think at the time of the murders, I think he'd retired already. Oh, so law so enforcement that, is kind of yeah. in the in the DNA. Which and is and a prominent family in the community. Yeah. Um, so they were very well known. That's why there was a lot of support for this family. If you look yeah. at the pictures of him, specifically on the day that the judgment was given, he's wearing white, his family's wearing white, and supporters of him were wearing white. So definitely, in a way, it tore the community apart in the sense of, you know, we believe Heine's innocent, and then there was a group of believe, yeah. obviously. Because I'm, I'm always curious. I mean, this guy's 23 years old. Um, you know, you were, I would assume, and you could kind of clarify here that that these kind of, you know, his sexual, fant you know, the fantasies of, 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 you know, sexual kind of murder fantasies or something, which are not new to him. They've been evolving. I'm always curious about what it is that kind of pushes somebody over the edge to mm -hmm. now go ahead and commit the act, because is this a, you know, are there potentially other crimes that mm -hmm. he committed here earlier on that the police are not aware of? Was this kind of him getting the ball rolling now as as, a, as somebody who's satisfying a particular mm. urge that he has? Um, they're very close together. Is this the beginning now of mm. a series potentially? There were no other murders that we could identify that had any similarities and remote similarities um, linkage-wise or physical evidence-wise to him. So we're, we're fairly confident that there was nothing prior to this. Um, it is, you know, too so far is, is not very common right off the bat, but we have had that. Um, so again, what we've seen perhaps in his previous behaviors, it, these were probably more about the power and control because he could successfully get a lot of women by yeah. his position as a DJ and, you know, yeah. relatively good looking guy, slick, smooth talking kind of individual. It was not an issue of here's a guy who couldn't get it right with ladies and now is taking exacting some kind of revenge. Um, it was, we saw him and Victoria had been sort of intimate in Already the, in the, the footage club, of the yeah. nightclub. So, you know, no problem there. Yeah. So it's probably more about that control and power over the other individual. Had that been expressed in other crimes that were never reported, it is possible. For example, in, in perhaps more forceful sexual encounters yeah. with other people, that is yeah. possible. We don't know. He was never charged with any of those types of things where elements of that control and power being, could have been played out in other relationships, um, voluntarily, involuntarily yeah. for the people. Yeah. I guess you'd, you'd assume that there probably were yeah. those kinds of incidences mm -hmm. earlier as he's kind of getting to the point where he feels like yeah. now he's ready to take that step and to to kind of yeah. take his first victim. For the average person sitting at home as well, I'm, uh, for the average person watching or listening, I mean, there's possibly also an assumption that once we catch people like this, that they go into, a, into, into an incarceration situation and that they then become the subject of some kind of research study that happens so that we can improve our knowledge just generally on on kind of um, sociopaths, psychopaths, and you know what we know of them, and etc. Is that a reality? I mean, you know, you didn't get to engage with with Van Royen. Was there a reason you didn't get to engage with him? And but is there a process in place to actually study these guys, um, these men and yeah. women? So I think our original involvement, um, we knew the head, the the head of the task team that was called up from Cape Town, Brigadier uh, Ati Trollope. Yeah. Um, asked us to get involved. We've been involved in other cases where he was in, uh, overseeing. Uh, and we originally went in, looked at the dockets, helped sort of say what's outstanding from an investigation point of view. My colleague, Colonel DeLanger, Jan DeLanger, went down with me and did that. And then it became necessary for the linkage analysis at, at the trial. So at that point, because the suspect was identified, it wouldn't have automatically been necessary for us to interview him. We often will, but we wouldn't have been allowed to interview him. Uh, for my linkage analysis evidence, because I'm not saying Honey from Royan committed these crimes, I'm saying whoever committed these crimes, it's the it's same the individual. Same the court is up to the court to decide who that individual is. Sure. For that purpose, it wouldn't have been important for me to interview him. Sure. Would I have loved to? Uh, absolutely. Now, does do they get part of some kind of research after they're incarcerated? No, not as a standard, because you can't do research on people. Uh, a against it's, unless they volunteer to be participating. It sure. correctional service doesn't. They don't see it as their role to study people. Sure. So unless you had, like I did with my master's and my doctorate, someone who wants to do a study interviewing serial murderers, for example, looking at a particular angle, gets permission from correctional services, then gets individual permission from these various people uh, to, to include them in their research is the only way that, that there might be some such research. Even when I was in the police, we did try and go back and interview ones that we hadn't had a chance to interview, but 
our priority was obviously trying to catch the ones who were still out there. So yeah. we had to juggle up the, the overwhelming amount of cases we had yeah. versus interviewing people that we have already got incarcerated. And that became a real challenge. So I did that with a few guys who, are, we had, who I hadn't been involved in sure. during the investigation sure. phase when I was in the police. But of course, my master's and doctor before I joined the police, yeah. I was doing that. Yeah. But probably not enough. And again, the other question is, how do we fix these people? Yeah. He had multiple attempts to, you know, he did appeal it and, was, and, 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 the, and the conviction was upheld and the sentence was upheld. So, of course, he would have not at that point been willing to participate because he would be going off the point of I'm innocent. And I think probably still is at the standpoint that I'm innocent and I'm not responsible for these. Yeah. You know, a bit of a twist in the tail after he was convicted. Later on, someone came forward saying, you know, he actually is an incarcerated person came forward saying he's actually the guy who killed these people. And then he later withdrew that saying that he's lying, it's not telling the truth. So there are kind of these little ups and downs and the family definitely and his lawyer try to push that this is wrong, wrong conviction. They try to mm -hmm. say that Director Trollope, you know, had a bad reputation and he had influenced this They're type of evidence because they said in another case, you know, acute, there was accusation that he had interfered with evidence. Um, but ultimately, this was individual evidence that the court used to find this guy guilty. Um, it was not evidence, it was snuck in, it was not everything. The DNA wasn't disputed, there was a real DNA that was yeah. accepted by the courts and his yeah. versions of events, yeah. etc. So um, it was a, a, as a compendium of evidence that the court finally used to say that, you know, he was, he was guilty for these types of offenses. And sentenced to 30 years imprisonment with no parole. Well, I mean, that's, you know, the, the, the judge can say that, but the, everybody has the right to be considered for, for parole. Okay. So those would have probably been... Oh, here uh, it says he can only ask for parole after 25 years. Yeah, so that means it probably would have actually... 25 years normally means he was given a life sentence, sure. which normally means after 25 years you can get considered. But he probably would be benefiting from a constitutional court decision that came up this year and a previous one that actually would have allowed them to be given consideration or considered for parole far earlier, even probably, he's probably one of those people that falls currently into the parole consideration bracket, such as Donovan Woodley from the Lee Matthews case. Which makes you think about where there's the gap here is this idea of an intentional kind of research effort to understand these types of offenders better, which then applies, which can then be applied to practical kind of rehabilitate, you know, ideas of ways to rehabilitate these guys because the scary thing is that you know this is somebody that has your very typical serial killer type you know criteria power and control sexual um you know typically a, a very dangerous sounding human being who's not really being given kind of treatments that could be addressing some of these psychological issues that he has that in a relatively short period of 15 to 20 to 25 mm -hmm. years can be back on the streets again without having undergone any serious intervention. Intervention. Because he was convicted in, I think it was about May 2008. Um, so there's a good possibility. Yeah, I think actually he does fall into that that uh, provision. Like as I said, Donovan Moodley, the Lee Matthews kidnapped murderer, should have been considered for parole in 2015. He's now coming up for consideration sure. for parole now because of this, these constitutional court judgments. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure Heine van Rooyen will be one of those people in the same. How do you feel about someone like Heine van Rooyen 20 years later being back on the streets? Um, I don't feel comfortable with any serial murderer because even if and we, we find is they're usually very well behaved in prison. Yeah. Um, but prison, they're not exposed to the stresses and pressures and circumstances and victims yeah. like they were exposed to when they're on the outside. And because we don't know what makes someone a serial murderer, how do we know that we've fixed it? Yeah. And sexual offenders in general are higher rates for reoffending. You have a sexual offender and a murderer. Yeah. So that kind of really makes me anxious that I, I personally would not feel comfortable with any serial murderer being released back into society. Mm. How do we measure that we know this person is no longer a danger. And unfortunately, rehabilitation in the correctional services is, like I said, we don't know what causes the problem, so how, do we, how does the psychologist and other people know what to step in and try and fix? We should consider an episode where we discuss kind of the, the current trends as to kind of where the world is going mm -hmm. with regards to incarceration and rehabilitation of these types of offenders. I think that would be something interesting to do a deep dive on as well. What are your key takeouts from this from this case? What kind of stands out for you in this particular case? Um, again, the victimology, you know, we don't have, you know, typical in South Africa, we unemployed black females are our most common target group. Um, so these were, they were a bit younger, 18 and 20, perhaps a bit younger than, than most of them. Yeah. They were obviously white females from 
you know, sort of middle-class um, environments. Not typically, you kind of, outside of your race group, murdering outside of your race group is not super common either? We we probably have that a bit more than you get overseas. Sure. So okay. that's not that uncommon, but okay. usually a mix of races in the victimology of a suspect. Um, he knew them both to some degree, so we typically find your serial murders are targeting strangers, so that's a little bit different here. Um, um, and he, like, you know, he, it, often the, the suspects are unemployed, um, typically black males who are doing either sort of odd jobs or unemployed. He, he wasn't either of those in that case. So different from the norm, doesn't mean it's not serial, it just means it's not the typical norm. Um, as I said, the, the interesting evidence that was led, led regarding the, 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 the pollen of the flowers, I don't really know any other trial where that was led. Um, so those kind of factors kind of make it one that stands out a little bit different for those for those particular reasons. For sure. So the family, the community, there were those that that were kind of fighting Van Royen's corner, um, trying to muddy the waters, like you say, with, with certain information. Is the right guy locked up for these crimes? Yeah, I mean, I mean, ultimately, it's the court that has to make that final finding based on all the evidence, not just one person's thoughts. But I'm quite comfortable that the court made the right decision. If I, from my point of view, um, if I look at all the evidence, um, yes, I think it's the right guy sitting in, in jail. And that was the view of the court and the appeal courts. The appeals were, were, were not successful in that regard. So I'm quite comfortable that we've got the right person. Uh, and and I think the takeout for me is something you mentioned earlier. If guys don't leave your girlfriend with the DJ. Yeah. Okay. You, she may turn up the next day alive still, but that doesn't necessarily mean she's going to still be your girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Jared. Um, so, uh, an interesting case. Thank you so much as always. Um, it's nice to be back up and rolling. Hopefully, we can get more people subscribing to our YouTube page. We're currently on 300 subscribers. We need to get to 1,000. That's our kind of first benchmark. So, please get your friends, family um, to subscribe to the page and have a listen. We've got some great episodes up, and we're going to be planning some great episodes for this year. Um, you know, talking about some of the stuff that we've discussed today. We'll unpack in more detail throughout the year. Um, you can catch us on YouTube then. So Profiler Africa, just ask your friends to search Profiler Africa. We are also available as a podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, and iTunes. And you can uh, check out and join our social media pages. Our handle is at Profiler Africa. Uh, you can check out uh, images from the cases we discuss, etc. Just to give you a richer idea of um, uh, an understanding of the stories that we talk about here. Uh, Instagram, uh, Facebook, and Twitter. Our handle's at Profiler Africa. We'll be back next week. Pleasant dreams. <laughs>